as you can tell, Brother DeGarmo is not here. And I told him just stay home until we know how they're doing. But since most of our preachers are busy in other areas during this time, Sunday school hour falls to me. And so how, ble- how blessed you are, amen. But I do want to say again just how blessed we are to have Brother DeGarmo. Um, he's a really good teacher. And I don't say that only because he helps me out a tremendous amount, but because he feeds us well. And a lot of the preachers that come through comment on how well he does. Before I was pastor, I used to fill in for a lot of preachers fairly regularly, and I always enjoyed preaching, but I always dreaded Sunday school. And the reason why is because when you go fill in for somebody and you teach a Sunday school lesson for one day, 40 minutes, whatever, it's like you don't have much time to really get into anything and really study it with any depth. And so I always kind of dreaded that, but I'm happy now, obviously as pastor, I used to long for the day that I would be able to do nothing but study and methodically go through the Word of God, which we've been doing on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. And, and so that's been a joy for me. But because you can't really get into much in one week, and I don't know if he'll be back next week, you end up preaching topical sermons that you can't really dissect. And I really, I said all that to say, I really struggled with what to teach in Sunday school. And Brother DeGarmo called me Friday evening and said, hey, we won't be there. And so I told Adrian, well, my day, my night just got real busy. And so I started praying, Lord, what should I talk about? And I decided to preach on, well, talk about, should Christians vote? I figure with the election only 72 days away, should Christians vote? When I was in the military, it was always said, the two subjects which were off limits were religion and politics because they are so divisive. Maybe would even jeopardize good order and discipline in their mind. And clearly when you look at our nation today, we are divided on these two areas. We are divided almost down the middle when it comes to each side of the aisle politically. And we are certainly divided religiously We're almost equally split politically. So let's have fun and let's consider religion and politics. While growing up, my dad was always active politically and outspoken, very opinionated, still is today. And because of this, I was always aware of politics growing up. Not to mention, in those days, if you did not have cable television, when the president addressed the nation, you had to listen to the president address the nation because all three channels were carrying it. And you're hoping the president would hurry up so you can get back to watching football or whatever it was. And you likely had one of those televisions that sat on the floor. (laughs) You You had to turn it on like five, ten minutes early to let it warm up so you could, (laughs) and not to mention, yeah, (laughs) we didn't have remote control, 
but I was the remote control. <laughs> hey, boy, change the channel. And, of course, nightly news was a big thing at that time, before all these 24-hour news channels. So politics was something we were aware of, is all I'm saying. While growing up, my dad was always active spiritually, very opinionated as well, and that's still true today. He was even my pastor during my teenage years, which was a huge help for me during that time, and it helped me immensely spiritually. Because of this, I was always aware of God and church. So for me, there was never an issue when these two controversial areas blended together. In my home growing up, you didn't separate the two. And I didn't think anything of it as I moved out. I joined the Air Force at 17, and I began to learn pretty quickly that there's a lot of varying opinions out there and very passionate at that on religion and politics. And be honest with you, when I first moved up here in 2001, one of the things that I really liked about our church was how Preacher Williams wasn't shy about blending religion and politics. During my last assignment here, I was very blessed to have a senior NCO working for me who was a Christian. He loved the Lord. That was clear. He was not of our stripe. But because he was a believer and he was genuine about his faith, it made for a better work environment. Amen. But he was also very much against getting involved in politics. And yet, what was very interesting looking back now is that he was very opinionated when it came to politics, and he studied it, and he knew what was going on, but he believed that Christians had no point getting involved in politics. So needless to say, we had some good conversations. I remember he laughed at me hysterically before Trump ever even got the nomination, and I said, Trump will be the next president. He couldn't even think of it, because to him, Trump was a chump, and anyway, I digress. So here was this man who loved the Lord, but very strongly opposed being involved in the political process. And naturally, I inquired, how did you arrive at your conclusion? And I want you to know, I'm not being hypercritical here, because I still have close friends who feel this way, and I know there are some in this church who feel this way. But to him, it was pointless to be involved politically because this world is not our home and we're just passing through. And that's true, amen? Hallelujah. Thank God we are merely strangers and pilgrims upon this earth. And, and don't you know that we have here no continuing city, but we seek one to come whose builder and maker is God. There are many passages which speak of this truth. In John chapter 17, the chapter that we are currently studying on Sunday mornings, Jesus will pray in verse 16, they, speaking of his disciples, are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. 
In John chapter 18, Pilate says to Jesus in verse 35, Thine own nation and the chief priests had delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus responds in the beginning of verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. Philippians 3.20 says, For our conversation, and in that passage it means citizenship. It's the only time that Greek word is used. For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 talks about us being an holy nation. But we know that nation is not upon this earth. Not in the sense of an established kingdom, which will one day be in the millennial reign. But we can take verses like these and we can preach that because the world is not our home, we have no business getting involved in the political process. But the truth is, we have to take the Bible in its entirety and not just randomly take out Scriptures. We can build any position we really want. Not to mention many times when people are taking Scriptures, passages out of the Bible, what they're doing is they're taking them out of their context. And you have to have the context to understand what's being said. So what does the Bible say regarding the relationship between religion and politics? Should Christians be involved or abstain from politics? And I finally got to the point where we are going to be eventually, and that's Exodus 18. And then we'll also look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and find your place there. Before we get there, I want to summarize governments up to this point. Before the great flood in the days of Noah, there's no real mention of governments. What we do find is people who are trying to live apart from God's authority. And that doesn't go well. Just consider Adam and Eve. And up to the flood, not a whole lot's going on as far as governments go. But after the flood, the Bible says that Nimrod became a mighty man in the earth. And he established a kingdom. And the kingdom's Babel, or Babel, depending on how you pronounce it. And there's a lot to that we could get into, but we're not going to do that. But what's interesting is man had gotten so wicked before the flood, God destroyed them all except for Noah, his wife and children and their wives. And after the flood, immediately it's already trending towards wickedness. Nimrod is establishing this kingdom and they want to build a city and a tower. The height thereof would reach unto heaven. And remember, it was in Babel where they were of one language... And the Bible says they desire to make a name for themselves, that they would not be scattered throughout the earth. I find that interesting that that was their concern. But as you know, God came down and He said, nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So God confounded their language. He went ahead and scattered them abroad upon the face of the earth, the very thing that they were trying to avoid. And from this, the Bible says that the Gentile nations began 
to be established upon the earth. And we know before God called Israel out of Egypt, there were political entities. And God called Abram out of his country, Ur of the Chaldees. As Abram sojourned, we read about kings. Therefore, there were kingdoms. And we know Joseph was sold into slavery and ended up in Egypt. He ended up running the nation, really. I mean, Pharaoh still had the the trump card, but Joseph was in charge. But it wasn't long after Joseph dies that we start to see in the Bible the desire for good government. Because when Joseph died, the Bible says there arose a Pharaoh which knew not Joseph. And they started to really persecute the children of Israel to the point that it got worse and worse through generations where Israel finally cried out to God. And God, of course, we know would deliver them through Moses. Now, God had foretold Abraham all this was going to happen down there in Egypt. But when God first called Abram out of his country... He told him, I will make of thee a great nation. God was going to get involved in the political process. And you cannot separate religion from government in God's eyes. Because it dictates the outcome of that nation. God wants to see if a nation is going to be obedient or disobedient. And then God determines the outcome based upon a nation's obedience to Him. And as God got involved politically, He was going to use Israel to drive out the nations that were in the land. In fact, the Bible says that God was waiting until the iniquity of the Amorites was full before bringing them out and using Israel to drive them out. And let me pause right here and say this is why this subject is extremely important. God always judges unrighteous nations. In fact, when our Lord returns, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Christ and He will judge them in righteousness. Now, we can fast forward to when Israel comes out of Egypt. God gives Moses His law. And he tells Moses, we'll be in chapter 18 in just a minute, but he tells Moses in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And obviously I don't have time to get into all of this, In one lesson, but God's desire for Israel was that they would obey His laws, that they would keep His covenant, so that the earth would know there was a God in heaven. God wanted there to be a difference between clean and unclean, and holy and unholy. And He was going to use a nation to do that, the nation of Israel. That was His plan. They were to be a nation, which means they would be a political entity. 
And the way God was going to do this, this difference, was He was going to have religion and government go hand in hand. To make Israel a nation that would show the difference between clean and unclean, holy and unholy, then it would require that the government be influenced by the religion. And I'm using the term religion loosely. I hope you understand that. And so as Israel came out of Egypt, it became apparent early on that this one man, Moses, could not handle everything. (laughs) It was too much for him to do. And he's got probably millions, two, three million people that he's dealing with. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes to Moses and he suggests some things. And that's what we'll find in Exodus 18. Look with me, beginning in verse 13. And we'll read through verse 26. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from morning unto the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning unto even? And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee, thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. Thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds and rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they will judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure." And all this people shall also go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel. He made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons, the hard causes they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. Now if you would please go over to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We kind of get the, the restating of what just happened. But we get a couple of different little nuggets here that I want, to, want us to see. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, look at verses 9 through 18. And I spake unto you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. The Lord your God hath multiplied you, and behold, ye are this day as stars of heaven for multitude. The Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as ye are, and bless you as he hath promised you. How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. And he answered me and said, The thing which thou hast spoken is good for us to do. So I took chief priests of your tribes, wise men, and known, and made them heads over you, captains over thousands, and hundreds, and fifties, and tens, and officers among your tribes. 
And I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the causes between your brethren, and judge righteously between every man and his brother, that the stranger that is, and the stranger that is with him. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment, but ye shall hear the small as well as the great. And ye shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. And the cause that is too hard for you, bring it unto me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which ye should do. Remember that when God gave the law, it not only dealt with religious matters, but it dealt with civil matters. And in this, we see again that God's intention was for there to be a blending of religious affairs and government affairs. And in fact, the two cannot be separated in God's eyes. We see in these two passages the type of governmental leaders that is recommended to have, the kind that we should seek for. The Bible says that we ought to be looking for able men who fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, wise men who would judge righteously and who would have no respect of persons, but would have respect for the rule of law. No wonder our nation is in a mess today. I read a satire article that made me chuckle about Joe Biden being the Democratic presidential nominee. And it said... Our hope is a man who's been in government for 50 years. And the whole satire was this. We're putting all our faith in a man that's been in the system for 50 years and hasn't been able to fix it yet. So while it was joking, there's a lot of truth to that. But anyway, I don't want to get off on that. No wonder our nation's in a mess. And in Numbers, God told Moses, And with you there shall be a man of every tribe, everyone head of the house of his fathers. And later on, he says in in the book of Numbers, take one prince of every tribe to divide the land by inheritance. And I'm just simply highlighting right here how God established a governmental order in Israel. And then if you know your Bible, Israel drifted away from the governmental system that God put in place. We see this throughout the time of the judges. While there were some deliverers that God would raise up, the entire historical period, we often describe it as this. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They were forsaking God's form of government. And things never went well for Israel when there was no proper governmental structure. We find the nation serving false gods and yoking up with the nations that they should have driven out to begin with, but they didn't do. They were snares to them. They were thorns in their side because they let wickedness stay in the land. Without a right kind of government, we find one of the worst accounts in the Bible recorded for us. There in Judges, remember the man who was traveling and he had with him his concubine. And he gets to the house where he's staying the night and the men of the city go and they beat upon the door and they want the man to come out so they can rape him. The guy who lives at the house says, you can have my daughter. The guy says, you can have my concubine. They take the concubine. The Bible says they abused her all night. And then by morning, she had fallen down at the threshold of the door, dead. And then the man cuts her up in 12 pieces and sends her throughout the coast of Israel. In this, we find the great danger of having no proper government. And it highlights the need for godly governments. After the period of the judges, the 
people of Israel asked for a king. And we know ultimately God was to be their king because when they asked for a king, God said to Samuel, hey, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me that I should reign over them. God was to be the king. And so what they were doing was they were rejecting God's form of government. And throughout the kings of Israel, we find that none were righteous within the house of Israel. Every king was wicked. And within the house of Judah, we find that there would be good kings and bad kings. And we find over and over again the result of ungodly governments and wicked leadership. And now I took the time to quickly summarize all that government history to show you how God's design for government is to complement religion. There was no separation of the two. And when there was a separation of the two, the righteous people had no voice in government. The nation went tragically down the wrong path, and it greatly hindered their religious freedoms. And I'm not suggesting that in America today, we are not to have a separation of church and state. We understand that in our form of government, it's absolutely necessary. We do not want the government saying you have to go to a Methodist church. Pick the church. I'm just throwing one out. We don't want the government establishing a state church that we are forced to pay taxes to and all those things we, we covered at the God and Country rally. And I'm afraid what has happened in America today is too many God-fearing Christians have bought into the idea that they should have no place in government. But I can't find that in the Bible. To be sure, politics should never trump our Christianity in importance. Do you agree with that? For example, if you're spending more time watching the 24-hour news cycle than you are spending time with the Lord, you may be putting too much emphasis on politics. <laughs> now, some like myself will highlight that Jesus, He never got very political against the Gentiles that Gentile dominance of the Romans that was over Israel. He never really got very political. But do you notice that he does rail against the leadership in Israel? He does rail against the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Had they been doing what they were supposed to do, there wouldn't have been any issues when Jesus showed up. And so there was an issue there. He does go after the leadership but he goes after Israel's leadership. And the fact is, we do find people of God very involved in politics throughout the Bible. Before Israel was a political nation, God used Joseph in politics to save much people alive. Moses stood before the Pharaoh of Egypt. We routinely find the prophets of God standing up to the governmental oppression of their day. And they were sent by God to do so. And some even helped to reestablish the shortfalls that had developed in their government. Ezra and Nehemiah used politics after the Babylonian captivity to their advantage. Mordecai and Esther did not hold their peace, the Bible says. But they used politics for such a time as this. John the Baptist did not back down from Herod who was the political power in his day. Paul used politics when he used his Roman citizenship to his advantage. Paul even appealed to Caesar 
using the political process of his day, knowing it was God's will. Now let's fast forward to to our day. Back there in the 70s and 80s, there was a major battle over education rights. There were actually pastors and teachers being arrested if they had a Christian school at their church. In the heartland of America, that was taking place. Thankfully, some of these men are still with us and you can talk to them about their experiences back then. And if it weren't for Pastor Williams and other men during that time in our state going to the Capitol, using the political process to stand up for parental rights, then your children would be forced today to go to the public school. Now listen, I'm not against you if you use the public school. But aren't you glad you have a choice? Amen. This is all thanks to Christians who were heavily involved in the political process. And from this movement back then came what was called the moral majority, which was a political movement of Christians who played a key role in mobilizing conservative Christian values and really swept Ronald Reagan into office. And all kind of victories were taking place back there in the 80s because Christians were starting to come out from hiding. They had believed the idea that they have no place in politics And thanks to some key men in our country, uh, some Baptist men at that, they started to mobilize God's people. And then all of a sudden, Christians got involved in the political process, and we started to see some conservative victories beginning to take place. So back to the question, should Christians be involved or abstain from politics? I say Christians should definitely be involved in the political process and even seek for political office for that matter. I believe having the ability to vote for our governmental officials is a gift from God. I think it's wonderful that we can have a say on who goes to office. Hopefully, and I I know there's a lot of swamp, if you will. Hopefully that we might be able to shape policy and laws through the voting process. Now, you can disagree But how many of you think Israel in the Old Testament would have loved an opportunity to say who was their leader and who wasn't? I think biblically speaking, I've shown there is nothing wrong with Christians being involved politically. And if we don't stand up and vote, what does that say about our love for our country? What does that say about the men and women who shed their blood and gave their life for that right? So how should Christians vote if they feel led to do so? Well, would you look over with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2? 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to read verses 1 through 4. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. First, let me say this. If we are told to pray for our governmental authorities, then it makes sense that if we can also have a say in who gets elected, we ought to do so. 
it's a blessing to be able to do that. But we see here that we should vote for whoever gives us the best chance for godliness to prevail in the land. Why? Because of verse 4, God will have all men to be saved. God wants all men to be saved. And we should vote for candidates that give us the best opportunity for godliness in the land so that the gospel can have free course, which it does in our form of government. And listen, it's under attack. I understand that. The North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California was had a notice put on their door last night. You are to cease and desist having church. God wants all men to be saved, and in a righteous government, it is more easily accomplished. Just look at the communist regimes and look at the socialist regimes and look at what's happening with the gospel in those countries. And listen, we've been trending towards socialism now for several decades. I believe it started all the way back in the early 1900s, personally, when we started with Social Security. We've been trending in this direction for decades. It crept in secretly. And it's now being openly pushed by certain elected officials. Did you hear what I said? Certain elected officials are saying we need to be a socialist nation. Not just some wacko fringe guy, but Bernie Sanders, who if Hillary wouldn't have tinkered with that one, he would have been the nominee against Trump. Did you see all the states the man was winning? A socialist. And I submit to you that Satan, he is working spiritual wickedness in high places to change the most free nation this world has ever known into a governmental structure where the gospel will be stifled. And if you don't believe me, give me one socialist nation where the gospel is distributed as freely as it is in America. And you can't do it. Even in countries like Canada, which some would say, well, they're not fully socialist. I don't know if there are or not, but I know this. They're up there saying you can't preach against homosexuality because it's now a hate crime. There's not one socialist nation upon this earth where the gospel has free course. How about this question I get sometimes from God's people, and I know I've got to hurry. Is it ever right to vote the lesser of two evils? <laughs> Good question. And one, I think, ultimately comes down to your conscience before God. For example, I've, I've got some red lines in the sand. And if a candidate crosses that, I'm not voting for him, period. Not in good conscience. One issue for me, and I'm not saying this so you can mirror me, just to give you an example. One of them for me is abortion. If a candidate doesn't stand up for the sanctity of life, I will not vote. I don't care what party he's with. But let's take this last presidential election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. If I felt that neither candidate was an ideal candidate, but one didn't violate my conscience with God, 
then for me personally, it would weigh too heavy on my conscience if the worst of the two candidates were elected and I did nothing about it. Because I know for sure with one of them, it's going to be really bad. I may not be explaining that point well, but in a scenario where neither candidate was ideal, but one didn't violate my conscience, then yes, I, I would personally vote for the lesser of two evils. But you ultimately have to do what you feel is best between you and God. And if push comes to shove, then just write in the right candidate that you want. But I say take advantage of the opportunity to have a say. Ecclesiastes 10, 4, and 5 says, If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses or crimes in that case. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun as an error which proceedeth from the ruler. And may we as God's people never leave our place. Yielding only gives way to more problems. Just look at Israel when they didn't drive out the people. We must stand up against the evil of our day because they have risen up against us. And in America, we're blessed to have an opportunity to do so through our God-given political process. And in closing, my friend who I worked with, I talked about earlier in the message, would use the argument that God's will would be done no matter what, so why get involved? That's true to an extent. But I want you to get this. God's will is always in accordance with His Word. Stay with me on this. And in His sovereign will, He has allowed every nation to choose if they're going to serve Him or not. For example, God laid out very plainly for Israel the blessings they could have enjoyed if they obeyed God, and He laid out very plainly the curses they would endure if they disobeyed God. Just read Deuteronomy 28. And God's will would be according to their choice. If they chose to obey then they would be blessed in the land. But if they chose to disobey and reject God, then they would forfeit their right to the land. It was their choice. But God's will is always going to be according to His Word. I hope that makes sense. So yes, His will is ultimately going to be done, but it's going to be done as the people decide what they do with His Holy Word. And I know we've got to wrap this up. But in America, we have been seeing the result of our choice to reject God and His precepts in our government. And His will is going to be judgment for America. Maybe we could turn the tide. Maybe if all those people who said they did love the Lord stood up and voted again, then we could once again see a godly government which would complement religion and doesn't seek to tear it down. So I just want to encourage you, get informed on the issues. Get informed on the political candidates. I say take advantage of your, of your right to vote. And then on November 3rd, you do as the Lord has led you. Let's pray.